Mare Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And I'm also so pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And I'm especially happy to welcome one of my fellow professional service responders, Edward Leonard, who has been a practicing attorney for 36 years in the area of civil litigation, and he's been with the Orange County Sheriff's Department as a PSR, professional services responder, since 2008, and he served on the PSR Council and now serves as the Deputy Director in the Reserve Unit. So, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. You're wonderful. Thanks for having me. Well, let's tell our audience a little bit about what the the PSRs, or professional service responders, what they do. PSRs are civilian responders that assist the, the sheriff's department in different facets. We're non-sworn, but we're volunteers, and we handle numerous things, everything from vacation home checks to uh, taking desk reports and, and checking fix-it tickets, pawn shops lists compared to theft reports, business watch programs for various cities, traffic control, um, special projects, meaning that if you have a, a parade in your city and it's a sheriff's city, we'll likely be out there doing traffic control and whatnot. Uh, we do crime prevention. We do special projects. We do fire watch. We do crowd control, DUI checkpoints, and we move vehicles from other cities. We also check for graffiti and do vacation home checks. So we're and, busy. And yeah, we've and the airport. Ride, we've been known to write a ticket or two also for parking in a red zone or handicap. <laughs> Yeah, and we have a lot of PSRs who work at the airport, too. So those are lots Absolutely. of... Absolutely. We're in nine South County cities. We're in three North County cities. We're at the airport. We're in North County Unincorporated. We're in South County Unincorporated. Uh, we're all over the county, and we're assisting in, in so many ways, um, everything from paperwork to you name it. There are many sensitive things that you can't do without sworn personnel or without people who have been vetted by the department. We're not sworn personnel, but we are vetted by the department. We'll talk more about um, exactly what we do to save this county a lot of money, okay? So we will have you back again, and we'll do this right away. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye-bye. Thanks, Mari. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed being in this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit 
kuci.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about a lot of different consumer privacy issues, and we have a wonderful consumer privacy attorney with us today coming to us from Texas, and let me explain to you a little bit about Ethan Preston's practice. Uh, He has a law office in Dallas, Texas, and he has represented consumers in class action since 2006, and he focuses on unfair trade practices that relate to consumer technology and consumer privacy. He's taken on substantial leadership roles in several class actions, and he was appointed lead counsel in Lofton versus Bank of America Corporation and many others. He also has written several law review articles, and he deals all the time with helping consumers to protect their consumer financial privacy and their consumer privacy in many areas, and this is a huge area of growth in technology. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, Ethan. So let's talk a little bit about what is the biggest threat to privacy today? I think if you ask most people uh, in America, they talk about the data collection formed by our government after September 11th. I think a lot of people don't know necessarily that the NSA uh, surveillance of communication is fairly long-standing. Uh, there's a book called uh, Puzzle Palace by James Van that came out in 1982. Um, so some of what the NSA has been doing very long. But obviously there's very recent disclosures uh, by people like Edward Snowden. Right. Disclosing kind of new techniques and uh, new areas areas where the NSA is pushing. And I think if you talked to most Americans, they would be uh, most disconcerted by kind of this pervasive uh, surveillance that uh, our, our society is experiencing. Right. So what are some of the pre- threats uh, to privacy that ordinary people can address? You know, a lot of this feels like it's beyond our control, like for the NSA when they're working with uh, AT&T or other companies to collect data from us, and they're going on, you know, Google or whatever it is that they're collecting information about us online, on our phone conversations, while we're texting, all these things. It's kind of hard for the ordinary consumer to do much about what the NSA is doing. So let's talk about what can ordinary consumers really do to protect their privacy. And and we can talk about the two types of privacy. I'm an attorney, and in fact, I'm a a consumer attorney. And so I kind of tend to look at everything in terms of, you know, what's actionable or, or things where I can bring lawsuits on behalf of ordinary people. Right. The lawsuits... I think, as you're you're kind of saying, fortunately, the lawsuits against AT&T and the NSA those have not gotten very far. In fact, I know that the AT&T lawsuit uh, was was dismissed, and that uh, the Ninth Circuit affirmed that. Um, and you know, the the EFF uh, Electronic uh, Freedom Foundation brought a series of lawsuits to kind of deal with the NSA surveillance. Unfortunately, the the courts and Congress uh, have not been as protective as I would have liked. Right. Um, but there are still things that ordinary people can do uh, to protect their privacy and vindicate their privacy rights. And I think that's really important because as society, we, by, by taking this up in the court, we send a message not just to the defendants, but to everyone else. We take our privacy seriously as a as society. And that you need to 
consider are private when you interact with our information. And I think that's one way of kind of, even if you're not suing the government for, you know, what the NSA is doing, if the NSA knows that privacy is on everybody's mind, I think the Edward Snowden disclosures have really made uh, folks a lot of attention on that and, and changed the conversation. Right. That's what I'm talking about. When we talk about privacy, we talk really kind of um, at least two aspects to privacy. First is the right to be left alone. And right now we have statutory rights that protect us from unwanted telephone calls. They protect us from, uh, especially debt collectors are very, very uh, well regulated. Uh, and so if you're in debt trouble, that's something that you can do something about. Um, and spam. The, the other aspect to privacy is informational privacy. And it's the right to control how information about us is used. We're not Europe. We don't have a uh, kind of a universal, uh, broad regulation of, of data processing. Europe does. Uh, American privacy regulation is really fairly specific um, and it, it about specific subject matters. I mean, down to we have a, a driver's privacy protection right, which protects motor vehicle records. We have a video uh, privacy protection act, which has to do with um, whether or not video stores or video uh, purveyors can share information about you without your consent. We have health and information. California has been at the lead. Yeah. California will even regulate what information a retailer can ask you. Right. Uh, when they're taking your credit card. Right. So um, there's all sorts of things you can do to protect your privacy beyond what everybody talks about doing but never does, like you know, using Tor to, to browse the Internet all the time or using uh, encryption on your email. There are other steps you can take to, to secure your privacy as best you can. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the Telephone Consumer Protection Act to protect our privacy. You want to explain a little bit about that and um, the case? of Meyer versus Portfolio Recovery Associates? Absolutely. The TCPA, or Telephone Consumer Protection Act, gives a number of protections to uh, American consumers about how people them. Those protections include most the, the biggest regulation, the, most, the regulation with the most impact is uh, a prohibition on using auto dialers to call cell phones. Most people have a cell phone these days. Many people only have a cell phone. Um, and most businesses use an auto dialer to call you when they're trying to sell something or when they're making an unsolicited call. Right. If they do not have your prior express consent, they cannot call you. If they do, they violate the TCPA and that there's statutory damages of $500 per call. The same applies to pre-reported voice calls, and that's any line, that's residential or cell phone. Telemarketing calls where you have put either your uh, cellular telephone or your uh, landline on the do not call list, any kind of telemarketing call also violates the TCPA. Um, these cases can have real teeth, and you can change cons uh, companies' behaviors. These cases. And I, I want, I, I'm glad you, you asked about Meyer versus portfolio recovery, that's one of my cases. Uh, that's a case in which we obtained an injunction against a publicly traded debt collection company. That prohibited them from using their uh, dialing equipment to call certain kinds of numbers in California. And they fought it. They went up to the uh, the Ninth Circuit. And fortunately, the Ninth Circuit upheld the injunction and gave us 
some really great holdings on um, consumer privacy being an interest that's protected by the law. The value of that holding goes well beyond my case or any particular TCPA case. It really reaches uh, a broad swath of cases where people say, look, the, the loss of consumer privacy, you know, maybe doesn't mean anything. You can't put a price tag on it. Well, the Meyer case said, no, that's irreparable harm, and you can get injunctive relief for that. And I think that's something that's about, I'm grateful to be a part of that, uh, and it's, it's something that's really valuable for consumers. And the Ninth Circuit has been a little bit more privacy conscious than some of the other circuits. Wouldn't you say that in terms of, of holdings? I think that's absolutely the case. I think that may be a function not just of the judges on court, but also the kind of cases that are brought in front of Ninth. Mm-hmm. California is a really uh, cutting-edge uh, state. It, it's got a very cutting-edge economy, and it has cutting-edge legislation. Not in every sequence or not in every uh, context, but privacy. They, yes, they really yeah. marked out their their place in forefront of privacy regulation. Right, and so in terms of the holdings, what you know, what did these justices say that you think can be? Um, expanded in other areas of privacy to, to really give us back some information privacy? Well, the most important part of the holding to me is when you uh, are in federal court and you want injunctive relief, you have to establish something called irreparable harm. Right. Um, and there's not a whole lot of case law on whether or not consumer privacy equals irreparable harm. Right, right. Um, And Meyer, the Meyer case, said in a really straightforward and strong way, absolutely, consumer privacy, uh, when that's violated, that is irreparable harm. Mm -hmm. Because you can't put a price tag on it. And Meyer, I know you're an attorney, and so maybe not everybody who's listening will know this, but one of the tricky parts with irreparable harm is if it can be compensated with uh, money at the end of the case, Right. You typically can't prove irreparable harm. That's not irreparable harm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, it, it was something. Uh, the holding was something where you could you could take to another court and say, "Look, this person is violating people's privacy right now. Whether or not they can be compensated with money later on for past violations, you can't." compensate them for future violations. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the nature of privacy, that's really true. Um, once information is out of the bag, right. once the bell is rung, it can't be unrung. Right. Especially on the, the kind of the, the, the way the internet is nowadays. Exactly. Um, the way we, we you know, in, in the, the, the business sector, the way it exchanges consumer information, it's a commodity. And once it passed somebody's custody and it's been disclosed, um, it, it's out in the open you could never never get it back. I mean, it, it, if you think about um, uh, the poor people involved in, in the Ashley Madison oh, uh, yeah. breach. <laughs> right. Horrible. That's, that's an example of irreparable harm. Right, right. You just can't repair it. <laughs> no, there's no amount of money that's going to be able to fix if your uh, email address is listed in the, that, that breach uh, and find out about it. You can't fix that situation. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and and the the case of Holmes versus NCO Financial Services because you know people nowadays with challenges with 
maybe their medical bills, that goes to collections, or whatever it is that they're having a hard time and it goes to collections. Um, A lot of people don't recognize what their rights are under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, and a lot of companies are violating it, especially when it comes to, for example, identity theft victims. So tell us a little bit about the case of Holmes versus NCO Financial Services. Sure. Let me give a a background on the FDCPA. Uh, I know some of your listeners are college students. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I was in college, I was uh, A, not particularly careful with my finances, and B, I didn't have a whole lot of money. Mm -hmm. Uh, That uh, combination, I think, applies to a lot of college students, and I think a lot of college students might find themselves in a situation where they're dealing with debt collector. Um, Fortunately, the FDCPA provides you some rights. The FDCPA prohibits the debt collector from contacting other people about you or disclosing that you have a debt in general. Uh, They can look for you and contact other people to look for you uh, to a limited extent, but they can't tell other people that you have this debt. And that's something that a lot of debt collectors get in trouble with. Right. They also, uh, once you tell the debt collector to stop contacting, they pretty much have to stop. They can send one last letter, but that's it. Um, And so you can take charge of a debt collector, and you can tell the debt collector, stop, don't bother me, enough of this. And you have, frankly, a a great deal of control uh, over how the debt collector proceeds. Now, the debt collector might go into court, and that might be a problem for you, but then you're dealing with an attorney, and you're dealing with a lawsuit, not a debt collector. And I think Um, a lot of people, I think this is really important because people call me, especially victims of identity theft will call me and debt collectors will call them and they'll say, um, they'll say, I can't, you know, I haven't even seen the bill and the debt collector has a duty to provide to the debtor or the, you know, fraudulent debtor um, all of the documents that relate to that debt. And a lot of people don't know that. They don't know that they are entitled to do that. And sometimes I've heard victims of identity theft have called me and said, Mari, they won't give me copies of anything. They told me I need a subpoena. And that is not true under the Fair, uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act or the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, right? That's absolutely true. The one thing I want to add to that is you do have to ask. Right. Now, their letter should tell you you have a right within 30 days to ask for a validation of the debt. Uh, and a lot of debt collectors don't do a real good job of validating their debts, but you do have a right to get information about the debt collector. And regarding the um, idea of kind of identity theft debt, I want to get back to that because the, the FTC red flag rule is really important about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it mm-hmm. has, has huge implications for that, and you, you cannot sell uh, debt that is the product of identity. Right. If you're claiming fraud, you cannot sell it. Right. But if it's already sold before, like if the bank sells it before they know that that it's fraudulent, which sometimes happens. That that sometimes happens. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, you're right. Absolutely. If if you inform a bank that this is fraud and then they sell it, that is a great lawsuit, isn't it? It, it sure is, and uh, I, I would love to talk to people who are in that situation. Um, but let me tell you about Holmes versus NCO. Yes, yes. That's a case 
in in which um, my client got uh, entangled with a, uh, a telephone provider, a telephone service provider, and they uh, it was a, a false debt, a debt he really did not owe. He had canceled service, mm-hmm. um, and he, he told AT&T and everybody else that he had, did not owe this debt. Um, and AT&T used a um, database effectively to communicate between different debt collectors, and it, it would cycle a debt through different debt collectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so unless they communicated and used that database, those debt collectors wouldn't necessarily know that a debt was disputed. In NCO, what happened was the debt collector uh, did not look at the database or didn't look at it um, in a way that it would actually pick up these disputes, and they reported the debt as undisputed mm. to the credit reporting agent. Um, and that was a violation of the FDCPA. Uh, this is another case. Uh, I spend perhaps more time in the court's appeal than, than I might like, Mari. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm doing okay. My track record is fine. I just <laughs> wish I was in, in the district courts a bit more. Right. Um, they, uh, the court did not like our theory of liability, did not think that we should have, uh, they, that, that NCO should have been liable. But uh, we went to the Ninth Circuit uh, after the, the case was dismissed, and we, we got a reversal. Um, and really the, the issue was, should this, debt collector have been looking at the database. And uh, the standard of law in that case and under the FTCPA was what should a reasonable debt collector uh, have done. Right. And you know, we, we had a very strong argument, I think, that the debt collector really should have been looking in uh, the parts of the database that we, we, we thought where the disputes were stored. Uh, right. So that's, that's the crux of that case. Um, but perhaps the most important part uh, for the listeners is the idea that if you tell a debt collector that a debt is disputed, they have to tell everybody else. That the yeah, debt they have to go back to the original company that sold them the debt and tell them that this was disputed or it was fraud or whatever. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Absolutely. And that's a and lot of people don't know that. Uh, yeah. Like AT&T had, where they're cycling debts through different debt collectors, that can be a very important um, right, because then you're not stuck disputing debts again and again and again, Yeah, exactly what happened to my poor client. Yeah. So did you have anything against AT&T? Did you, did you get a order against AD, AT&T to stop doing that, that you have one debt and then, I mean, you one debt collector and leave it to them? I mean, how is it that they can do that? Well, if you want to get into the weeds, Mari, I'm happy to do so. <laughs> <laughs> the first part is AT&T is not a debt collector under the FDCPA. Right. They're a creditor. Right. Um, however, they're also a debt collector under the Rosenthal Act, or the, the baby FDCPA, California's version of the FDA. Mm. Um, now, when we, we did sue AT&T, and they came back to us, and they showed, showed us, look, here's our database. We did list our uh, the the disputes, disputes. Uh-huh. prior disputes, and that database was made available to NCO. I see. So that, so that, that kind of let them off the It was a really interesting yeah. uh, factual setup because AT&T thought that they had communicated this to NCO, but NCO, uh, and, and, and that data was available to them, but NCO never looked in right. Right. So that was their negligence in doing that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So let's let's go on to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, talk a little bit. We we don't have we have you know about four or five more minutes. So let's get into uh, Wang versus versus 
asset acceptance and tell a little bit about those facts. I think that'll be interesting too. Sure, um, and it, it may help kind of illuminate uh, the FCRA for, for the listeners. Um, that's a case where uh, there was a debt collector who sent data to a credit reporting agency, uh, in that case TransUnion, and because of a miscommunication between the two companies, and they were really talking past each other, um, a group of about 200,000 people uh, who had disputes noted in their um, credit reporting, those disputes were wiped out. Now, that obviously violated the FDCPA, as we've discussed. That's the same kind of lesson from Homes versus NCO, but the credit reporting agency also had liability under the FCRA. Once they know that a debt has been disputed, they have to continue reporting that dispute. Right. And so they got into a lot of trouble um, under the FCRA. Uh, the FCRA is a very powerful statute. Uh, it, it and it does allow a private right of action, which things like HIPAA, you know, for your medical privacy does not allow. So no, it, it is a, a very That's good right. statute to um you know to use and i think that's it's such an important thing that you're talking about ethan is that people need to dispute in writing when they see that there is an error or if there is something that's fraudulent that they don't recognize, they must dispute it immediately. And for identity theft, they need a police report and they need to to really let them let people know it's fraud. But if it's really just wrong and it's not a fraudulent, they must dispute all this in writing so that they have something that can um, memorialize this so they can come to someone like you who can help them. That's true. My only suggestion for the listeners, though, is if you see an error on your credit report, dispute it with the credit report first. Yes, the credit reporting agency, yeah. Do not do not send it to uh, the debt collector or the furnisher. Um, or don't just Or do it at the same time, yeah. Yeah, what I usually would tell people is dis- you must first, or at least the, the main thing is dispute it with all three credit bureaus and then take that copy of that letter and write a cover letter to Chase or whomever else is involved and say this is a fraudulent thing I've already reported to the credit reporting agencies and then you're kind of covered on both ends. So and document everything. Yes. Scan all the letters before you send them out and I've had clients where it, it really mattered uh, that a, a letter was sent certified mail. Right. Because it, it created kind of this indisputable uh, record that a letter was sent and received. And, and this, that can be very important. Right. And that's a great way to end. We are just out of time, Ethan. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for all the great work that you're doing on behalf of clients and consumers. Ethan Preston, we will have you back again. Thank you so much. You take that care. Okay. okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. I'm 
Mari Frank, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict, which airs every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, and KUCI.org on the net. I'm so thrilled to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and we're welcoming back Assistant Sheriff Don Barnes, who is currently the Assistant Sheriff with the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and he's been with the department for 26 years, and he's currently assigned to the Administrative Services Command, which includes four divisions, Financial Research and Development, Communications and Information Systems, but also he works every command, and he has worked every command of the Sheriff's Department, and uh, we even interviewed him when he was the Chief of Police for the City of Lake Forest, so we're so thrilled to have you back. Thank you for joining us, Don. Thank you, Mari. So how about crime rates? They've uh, declined over the past decade, which is really good. So what can members of the public do to prevent themselves from becoming victims of crime? Mari, fortunately, Orange County continues to be one of the safest communities to live and work in the United States. However, we still have crime. Most of these crimes that occur are crimes of opportunity and may be prevented by adhering to a few simple rules. First, do not leave items of value that can be seen from outside your vehicle. That sounds quite simple, but oftentimes leaving items of value, even insignificant value like loose change, invites criminals to break into your car. Mm. Second, always lock your car, especially if you do not secure your car in your garage. And this is a tactic known as phishing, where thieves will often check the doors of cars to find cars that are unlocked and then rummage through the car for items of value. Right. They do not need to break into the car because the cars are unlocked and it makes the crime much easier to commit. Yep. Third, whenever possible, park your car inside your garage or a secured facility. Um, vehicles are twice as likely to be burglarized when parked in the driveway and four times more likely to be broken into when parked away from the home. So it's most important that you have the available garage to park your car inside the garage. And lastly, secure your residence by locking the doors and closing the windows. When possible, uh, lock your side access gate as well. Contrary to what people believe, the vast majority of residential burglaries occur during the day when we are away from our homes. Following the simple steps reduce this from occurring. Also, you can participate in a neighborhood watch program and more importantly, report suspicious activity immediately to police and that will further safeguard your home and your community. Well, thank you so much for those great tips. I think people really forget when they're shopping, they just leave things you know, on the seat of their car and then of course that does invite. So great, great, great recommendations. And we will have you back again. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mari. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.